0: I'm really passionate about paediatrics being different. And we have to acknowledge they're different and work within that to have the best care we can for them. And so it's been a real driver for me that we should look at it differently. We shouldn't be trying to make it into an adult setting. We should acknowledge that it's different, work out what needs to be done differently and do it well.
1: Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. The fundamental tool of infection prevention and control is risk assessment. That's a quote from the Gurley Microbiologist blog. And my guest today is the creator of that blog, Dr. Elaine Cloutman-Green. Dr. Cloutman-Green is a consultant clinical scientist in infection prevention and control. And today we're going to talk about her career, We'll talk about microbiology and her blog, and then we'll talk about how she advocates for science. All right, here's Dr. Elaine Cloutman green I watched a video and you were talking about how you had influences in your family. I think it was your dad and your sister that influenced you going into science. Can you talk about that? Can you you tell me how, how they influenced you in that way?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think family is really important at least to me family are kind of my my guiding stars and the thing that I come back to when everything gets really challenging um especially you know we all have days working clinically where it's it's hard going and at least having those calls to your being mean that you know exactly why it is you do what you do and for me I was really lucky my dad. I don't know, I know this podcast goes out all over, but my dad's family were all miners up in Yorkshire. So uh, very much traditional coal mining folk. And my dad was the first person in his family to go to university. And he was the first person that any of them knew to not only get a degree, but then to go on and get a PhD. And so he'd always really, really valued what doors academia Can open what doors being a student could open. You know, he saw his grandfather lose both of his legs in mining accidents. He saw his dad die early because of what it was like to work down a mine. And so this opened a completely different world to him that he was really keen that we got to experience. And um, he studied both chemistry and physics. And he always said to us that the power is sitting in the in between it's not going down a single route and being so focused on a single discipline that that's all you see the power is being able to kind of see the world in a different way and bring those things together and that's really kind of stuck with me but i felt that there wasn't a lot of good science and female representation until my sister um became an engineer and i think until that point even i had You just don't meet female scientists very much. It's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about being visible now and going into schools and going into universities. Every person that had come to my school was a male scientist talking about science. And you couldn't see yourself in them. Whereas my sister going to become an engineer and she was the only person in her whole class. really showed me that actually if you wanted to do it, you could do it. And there was space for you. You just had to find and create that space yourself. So I think they were both really important to me. And I wrote a blog post last year for Mother's Day where I talk about my mom. She had so much to do with science. Like she met my dad while she wrote up his thesis. And um she worked for a professor, but it was just not, it wasn't something that women could do when she was growing up. She wasn't given those kinds of access to education. She had to leave school at 14 to go and take on that job role for supporting her family. So even my mom, who has never worked as a scientist, has always encouraged me to make sure that I explore all of those scientific routes. So family for me are
1: really key. There's something you mentioned how there weren't any women scientists. That's an important point because for for a lot of people, I mean, whether you're a woman, a man, or whatever uh, kind of ethnicity you are, it's important to see someone who who looks like you, who has a similar background to you to know that 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 career is like that's OK for for someone like you to go into. Like, like it's not uh, it's not cut off from 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 you. Something like something like that. I'm not wording that correctly.
0: No, it's so true, though. I have a postcard that sits on my desk that says, You can't be what you can't see.
1: Yes. And I think that's so
0: important. I think it's so important to have it out there that, you know, I'm not from a really rich background. I'm not from somebody that went to private school or boarding school. And those things can be seen as a barrier. You can be seen as going, Actually, am I going to do that? Because I'll never succeed because someone like me will never succeed in that. There aren't, there There's not space for me in that world. And so I think it's incredibly important that we stand up as advocates once we've got to that point to say, actually, there is space for you here. There are people like you here and not just kind of sit and focus so much on our work that we don't make those pathways available for others following us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, but that's some of, or I guess maybe a lot of what, what you do these days. And we're going to get into that a little bit later, but all right. So you mentioned that your sister was an engineer. Did you ever consider becoming an engineer yourself?
0: I'm rubbish at maths. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> It's probably not going to be my thing. So I was really unwell during my GCSE. So that's uh, what equivalent to your high school diploma and A-levels. Okay. So during that period, I was, really sick and um so I could only go to school for an hour a day and I therefore couldn't really do the wide scope of qualifications that other people could do. Um and no one really thought I'd make it to, to university or kind of so it wasn't almost a thought process for me about what I was going to do next. I think the focus for me it was just on getting over that line to be able to get there. And so I chose to do something that I really connected with rather than obsessing about what it meant for my career kind of further down the line. Um, So my sister was a great pragmatist. She was super sensible in a way that I have never been accused of. And so she had a very much a career plan, right? She was going to go and do this degree and this, what the jobs were linked to it. And that was what she was going to do following on. I've always been a little bit more of an emotional follower and have followed the things that kind of inspired me and gave me passion and so i don't think i thought quite so much about the connect's career steps as she did but she was very good at both kind of maths physics and chemistry and i was always much more of a biology girl
1: okay that make that makes sense then because the path that you chose then is zoology
0: yeah i know and completely left field right
1: right yeah so what what was it that that spoke to you about this
0: um so The reason that I ended up doing zoology is because I was fascinated by animal behaviour, which has actually stood me in really good stead. I think people think it's really like a jarring thing and something really quite different. But I found the fact that group dynamics, pack dynamics um, are really, really interesting to study and how those transition and change you know how does it work for primates how does it work for humans and how that evolutionary psychology still drives us even though we're in a a much more kind of structured you know I'm not trying to light fires at night I'm not sleeping in caves but there's still that evolutionary drive that actually stands behind a lot of our behavior and although it's so different ironically now working in healthcare. Sometimes that really helps because of the fact that people are almost in a primordial, a primal state, right? They're scared and they're being driven by sickness and their emotional reactions to that. And so sometimes having that background to be able to understand those drivers enables you to actually communicate in a different way. Um, But mostly I did it because I find those kinds of behavioural dynamics fascinating. And it gave me an opportunity to kind of look into that more. As well as basing it on the biology stuff that I'd really liked during A level, so it, for me it was a really good combination.
1: That's interesting that you mentioned the group dynamics because, especially in the last two years, uh, you know we've we've really seen that kind of in action, both the good and and kind of the bad. So, yeah, I, I like how that kind of you know doing things that seem to be kind of unusual or kind of like you said left field. It, it you can still take. Aspects of those fields and apply them to science and and medicine and healthcare, and it still does apply. And I think it makes you more uh, more rounded, maybe if that makes yeah. any sense.
0: No, completely. I think that you see the world in a slightly different light if you can look at it from lots of different aspects, and those things come together as a strength. So I haven't written it, but I have a blog post uh, ready to go um, in my mind about the strength of interdisciplinary individuals Um, because I think we talk a lot about interdisciplinary grants we talk a lot about interdisciplinary approaches in terms of teams but we don't talk a lot about interdisciplinary people and that's often seen as a weakness in scientists that you're not you haven't been entirely focused on this one pathway for 10 to 15 years but Actually, we need people who can come to a problem and bring different aspects to it to look at it in a completely different way because that's how we truly innovate and move forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. Uh, and that's one of the things I, I talk about from time to time. It's uh, The concept I heard was called skill stacking. Mm. You take, you're not, you if you're not to the best, but you're good at several different areas and then you combine them together and then you're, that's a brand new area, a brand new field. Maybe sometimes, and you're, you know, one of the few or the only one in that area.
0: And yeah, can- I mean, I often joke about being number one in a field of one, right? Right. <laughs> so yeah. When I when I started in environmental infection control, there wasn't anybody that was doing the kind of stuff that I do, and I'm still the only infection control doctor who's a healthcare scientist in England that I know about. And so it's both an amazing thing because you're at the forefront and you're basically making the rules for yourself. I mean, the disadvantage is sometimes it's lonely because you can't benchmark very easily against what other people are doing to know how well you're doing it. But I think having the bravery to break down those barriers and take those steps is where we're actually making real change.
1: Yeah, for sure what did you end up doing in zoology like were you working in the field and then i want to kind of get into how you kind of transitioned into microbiology
0: my undergraduate dissertation was on the demographics of witchcraft accusations from 1620 to 1725 because i liked being in libraries quite a lot and so i reviewed every witchcraft accusation in the british library and every witchcraft trial and um And I loved it. It was all about kind of resource competition. So women were being able to inherit for the first time. And so it was a way of removing resources from people that weren't able to reproductively contribute back into the hands of young males who were competing for wives and therefore had a much higher reproductive score. And comparing that with the situation in the States, where actually it was a very different situation in terms of the um, reasons behind accusations in Europe, where it was much more of a political thing. It happened to much higher status individuals, and it was basically a way of getting rid of your political rivals. So I loved it. There aren't many jobs in that. It has to be set. So as much as I loved it, even I come my third year became quite pragmatic about next steps. And I was offered um, a PhD to go and kind of track primate movements in the jungle. And at that point, I kind of had to make a decision because I'm allergic to most of the things in the outside world. And although intellectually, I was completely up for it, um, pragmatically, I was like, you know, probably having anaphylaxis in the middle of a jungle on your own is not the best choice in terms of future career plans. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so I went and I took a bit of time out and then I got offered... A fully paid MRES, so a research master's, to sit at the interface between biology and physics. So, the physics of biological interactions at surfaces. So, it was a brand new field. They were trying to encourage people into it. And because that's the kind of space that I like to exist in, I found it really exciting, having never even done physics A level, went for it. And there was a module in there that was. All about applied science. So, for the first time, the reason that I hadn't done a lot of the projects that had been offered me and come my way is that I found them really intellectually interesting, but I didn't see how they made a difference. And that was really important to me. And I hadn't really conceptualized what applied science was, it hadn't been something that I'd really seen. And all of a sudden, I got given a dissertation on. Nanoparticulate coatings on catheter surfaces um, to reduce urinary tract infections and spinal injury patients. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, I can do science that changes people's lives now, not in 50 years, not in 25 years with a Nobel Prize, but there is science out there that means that you can change the way that people are impacted and their outcomes in six months, in three years. And all of a sudden, I found that that. Was the science that I'd always wanted, but not known how to get into. And so I'd done a couple of modules of micro as part of filling up my science um, list as an undergrad. But suddenly there was this whole world that was open to me where I could do science, I could work with people and actually see patients and make a difference in the short term. And yeah, couldn't stop me.
1: That's very interesting. That's kind of a, i guess a circular path to to get there but it's it's funny when you find the field that suddenly and you go and and it was the same way for me like yes this is the thing that i wanted to do and i you know even though i never knew it before
0: yeah because and i mean i it's one of the reasons i still talk about it a lot how can people Mm -hmm. even know these fields exist if we don't talk about them, they're not what you see on TV. Right. They're not what you read about in books. There is no body that has a character on Holby City, for instance, one of our medical TV programs. That's a scientist that works in healthcare. There's no visual for that. You're either a doctor or a nurse. And so I just didn't realize that scientists can actually do this job and make a difference because they just weren't available to me. And so I kind of took a while to find out that these things exist.
1: Now, it seems like then the natural progression, then you go on to the infection control for your PhD.
0: So pediatrics is fascinating, right? Um, And one of the things that's really fascinating about Pediatrics and kids, it's, they obey no instructions, right? They crawl on floors, they put everything in their mouths, and they're learning to walk. I have them with me for up to two years at a time. And so you get a relationship with them in a way that you don't. But all of those things that make it amazing because people hug them and play with them, and you have to have all of this really close interaction makes it a nightmare for infection control. They're not just going to lie on a bed and come and be with you for three days, do what you tell them to do and then be discharged. It's just not the world that I live in. And so it was this fascinating gap when I in the way our training works is my fourth year. I had to go and do a job. Right. So I ticked off my second master's and I ticked off all of my portfolio. But you had to go and do independently as a working scientist to post and I ended up in infection control because that was where there was some finance to pay for me to be for that year and again you saw this great scientific hole so infection control was being done really well but it was very single discipline in the UK it was very much The nurses did the infection control. There was an infection control doctor who informed on some of the micro, but there wasn't a massive amount of scientists actually working on evidence based or collection, right? When I started, it was still very much focused on if everyone washed their hands, everything would be all right. And that's just not the real world because there were so many other interactions. And so I saw this real gap where we could try to get some evidence into infection control, especially in the world of pediatrics, where all of those simple responses just don't work particularly well in order to make that rapid change, which is what attracted me to working as a healthcare scientist in the first place. And for me, it was really important that career wise, I would be able to stand in the same room as my medical colleagues and be able to justify my qualifications in the same way that they did. So it was really important that for me that I got both my um in the UK as a health scientist, you come in as the with a science degree, but I do all the same exams after that as my medical colleagues. So I get fellowship okay. of the Royal College of Pathologists as my exit Uh, qualification to be a consultant but that I also need to maintain my scientific identity and therefore have a PhD as well so that I bring those things together um, so that we can look at it slightly differently and so it just made complete sense to me that my PhD would be in infection control and how we challenge these slightly trickier things that actually require time and energy and resource to really think about in a way that you can't necessarily do if you're just responding all the time as part of the day job.
1: I want to kind of talk about infection control a little bit because this seems like, it, you know, it's sort of a broad field. It could mean a, a few different things, and I know you've written about what really what your job really entails. And one of the one of the things you wrote about was risk assessment which seems like a major part of what you do. Can you you talk about that and sort of infection control in general, what it means?
0: Yeah. So I think the first thing to say is infection control in the UK is quite different to infection control in the States at least. So I came over and did a two month sabbatical over at Boston Children's and infection control there is quite Different to kind of the day to day life for me as an infection control scientist. So, I give out clinical advice, I manage outbreaks, I um, talk about antimicrobial stewardship because I have the same qualifications as my colleagues. And so, I do a lot of speaking to patients, managing their condition, as well as having oversight of the audit response and that kind of quality assurance side. Um, And so, it's much more of a patient facing role in terms of responding to some of the things that infectious disease doctors would do in the States it's effectively you, are done by infection control teams over
1: here. Do you like the, the patient interaction aspect of it? Because, uh, you know, like you said, it's different here in the, in the States. We don't, uh, you know, the lab personnel, we really don't get much of that.
0: I love it because I think you can't really see the problem until you've been out there. So when I sit oh, okay. guidance, I have conversations about with patients and their families about what really matters to them. Because we've all sat in the lab, haven't we, late on a Friday night and gone, I just don't understand what the problem is. I've asked for this really simple thing. Why is not it happened? And the great thing about my job is I get to see why that thing that I think is really simple hasn't happened. And I also get to communicate with the ward staff about why they think that it's okay to send like a virus um, swab and can't understand why you can't get MRSA out of it, because they don't see the other side either. So sitting in that middle, where you can have that conversation with people going, yeah, it's not simple from either side people, let's just kind of calm down work out where that education need is, is really important so that we make the whole pathway better. I think it's one of those things about siloed working, right? It's really quite difficult to really understand what the barriers are unless you're getting out of the space so i mean it has its challenges like i get shouted at and all kinds of things um, but i think there are so many benefits to it that it's it's definitely worth doing but because of all of those things basically all my job is risk assessment because i never see the sa- exactly the same thing two days in a row like every patient is different and every family of every patient is different and every ward is a bit different and every organism is a bit different and so if you put all of these things together you can't cookie cutter out a solution a lot of the time you can have the same core principles but what you do on the outside needs to be modified in order to make it appropriate for the patient that's in front of you and I think that's both really challenging as a scientist who loves an algorithm and who loves a protocol, but also means that our approaches are very patient-centred. And I think healthcare needs to be co-created with our patients. It shouldn't be about me sitting in a room as an expert and telling people what their experience of their condition or disease is. It's about, especially because we deal with lots and lots of rare diseases, it's about somebody saying to me, i am one of five people in the country who has this condition these are the things that i need advice and guidance on so that we come to it together rather than just being a really kind of didactic one-way relationship
1: you know i was going to ask you like do you do you find yourself often trying to explain what you're trying to do to the patients Or i guess i mean because you work with children the patient the it must be even even more difficult to explain to children what about you know infection control and organisms and and that kind of thing how how do you you go about doing that
0: yeah and it's a real balance actually in terms of explaining but without terrifying because if you start Mm, to talk about the fact that invisible things can cause people harm you can see how you can very rapidly drive somebody to a pace where they're really scared of being in hospital all the time because it's a place that contains invisible stuff. And it's one of the things that really drove me to... I do a public engagement piece of work called The Nosocomial Project um, with an amazing playwright called Nicola Baldwin. And it's one of the things that kind of drove me to that because we can use things like drama. So we have like a sock puppet show... Um, which is based about a puppet in a hospital talking about bugs and being scared of them and what they actually mean and good bugs and bad bugs, so that we can have those conversations that aren't just me as a person in a kind of healthcare person coming in and telling a child what to feel, right? You can have those conversations in a way that they can engage with because it's about puppets that gives them some information that isn't all about them so it's not so that it's like I'm not telling them they have MRSA that's go but I'm giving them a context for information they receive in hospital that can be hung on so that they can actually do it with imagination creativity rather than fear I don't think we do enough talking to families about what their conditions are Um, I think there's still this transition in healthcare about the fact that we tell people as much as they need to hear, but not the full thing. And I think that we need to become much better at having those conversations about giving people as much information as they want, not as much information as I want to give. And giving people time and space to have those conversations with us, because that's a real gift that we have that we should be able to offer. And there are things that like, like that I saw Boston Children's that I love in terms of really open ward rounds where parents are involved in those ward rounds where we are not quite at that space yet that I'd love us to be moving to. So parents and families feel fully engaged in the care of their child because information is powerful. And when your child is sick, you feel out of control. And it's one of those things that we can give them back by enabling them to have information and input that otherwise, I think we do the magic
1: service. What do you think? And I'm not sure if you if you would even know the answer to this question. But what do you think it would take to get to that point in the UK, like you saw at your time during your time in the US, as far as giving information to parents and families like that?
0: I think it's a stepwise change, right? You have to support your staff to make that change. You have to educate them about how to communicate differently. You know. You have to remove that fear that they won't be able to have the conversation they want to have because there's a parent in the room. Because some of those conversations are hard. Like if you're talking about a child dying and like the outcomes, then I think there's this sense that you might be inhibited from having that openness of conversation if there was somebody there that is non-medical. And I think that a lot of that is about how we train people to have those conversations slightly differently. So you're still having them, but you're doing it in a way that feels comfortable to everyone involved. And I'm sure they do happen at other places, and I know that we have trialled them before. And some of it is about time. Doing these things takes time, and when everybody's really busy and really pressurised, the easiest thing is to have that quick conversation with all the abbreviations and jargons and shorthand that we all have at the end of a bed space, rather than doubling that time to have that conversation differently. And so I think it will come as the priorities change. And hopefully as we move out of COVID and everybody has a little bit more mental space to have these conversations again, because it's not like it's not talked about. It's just the times of high pressure. I think it's one of those things you put on the back a little later.
1: Sure. I can understand that. Now you've been working at a pediatric hospital for quite a while now and I I have to think that you know working in an infection control in I don't want to say a regular hospital but a non-pediatric hospital might be a little bit easier what why was it why was it that you chose to to work specifically in pediatrics
0: because I don't feel the need to sleep <laughs> I like to be busy <laughs> um, okay <laughs> no um so in all honesty pediatrics means a lot to me so I as I said I wasn't very well as a kid and actually when I was in primary school I ended up in intensive care on more than one occasion and I have been that sole child who wakes up paralyzed surrounded by adults seeing all the things that happen in an adult intensive care unit like someone arresting you and not having any idea what was going on no one had even told me I was going for surgery I was just on a trolley one minute someone put a gas mask on me the next and you wake up paralyzed unable to move in a room that you just don't understand and I would never want our patients to be treated as little adults I'm really passionate about paediatrics being different and we have to acknowledge they're different and work within that to have the best care we can for them. And so it's been a real driver for me that we should look at it differently. We shouldn't be trying to make it into an adult setting. We should acknowledge that it's different, work out what needs to be done differently and do it well.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Like it, it like your, your experience, your, your own experience kind of it drives you a little bit to to what you're doing now. Like you understand, I, I think you, you understand a little bit more because you, I mean, you've been there.
0: Yeah, I'd been the person as a child who sat into a room and had every adult talk to other adults as if I couldn't hear about okay. whether they were going to give me, me an emergency tracheotomy and not once speak to me and tell me that's what they were going to think about doing, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was, I was a fairly academic nine-year-old who understood what that meant. And nobody told me that I wasn't engaged in that conversation. And I've been through the years of outpatient appointments where no one spoke to you and people only spoke to your parents. And I don't want us to do that anymore because our patients have something to contribute to the conversation, even with that, how they feel about the day or how they feel about their symptoms. And we have to be including them and giving them a voice.
1: Yeah, I like it a lot. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Elaine Klautman-Green. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now back to Dr. Elaine Cloutman-Green on the People of Pathology podcast. Let's switch topics now. you In uh, 2015, you started the Gurley Microbiologist blog. And I think there was only just the, the first post for a number of years. Ages. Okay. All right. Ages. All right. So I want, I want to get into the, what, what that gap was, was kind of about. But first, let's talk about why you started the blog in the first place.
0: I started it because I don't think at the time there was somewhere that I felt that I could freely write without having to go through kind of corporate edits or writing what somebody else was commissioning me to write on that day. Because I've been writing lots of blog and doing lots of things for ages, but for other people based on what they wanted me to write. And I didn't feel like there was a space where I could write what I wanted to write in a way that was me talking to another person like I would if we met and we've already talked about how I think visibility is really important and I was really aware of that whole number one in a field of one thing and you know being the only female who was trying to become a consultant in my department and all of those things that I kind of wanted to talk about and to be really honest about sharing the fact that it isn't always easy right I mean I will laugh and fall off my chair one minute and will be in tears the next because that's sometimes it's really challenging and I think that people see this veneer of success and achievement and all of those things and they don't see my CV of failure and they don't see the fact that sometimes it just sucks and that you carry on going anyway um, because it's worth it and I think without those conversations people can feel really lonely in what they're going through in the moment and I just wanted to have a space where I could talk about like the nonsense things I've learned and the things that make me laugh and the um strange and weird and wonderful things that happen to me and to other people that I work with in order to really share what it's like to be a scientist.
1: Yeah, that's that's important to, to get the, the word out about all of those experiences. Now, so where, where did the interest in writing come from? Was that something you've always done or did that develop at that time or where did that come from?
0: So I think I've been quite interested in science communication for, I mean, most of my kind of scientific career. I don't think of myself as being a great writer. I don't know what to do with a comma, really. I just write the way I speak and don't worry about it too much. I don't try for perfection or, or brilliance or anything. I think it's mostly about having something that's really accessible because of the fact that I've been passionate about showing stuff, I have been asked to write stuff for other people. And and it was kind of grew from that. It's like, if I'm going to take nine, um, I don't know, an hour to write 900 words for someone else, then maybe I should take an hour to write 900 words for me on something that I want to sh- talk about. And if I'm writing for a professional body or if I'm writing for a journal article or something you have to do it in somebody else's style to match someone else's voice and I kind of think that I had a voice that was worth sharing just like I think everyone else has a voice that's worth sharing and that I want to hear and so I thought I can't ask other people to do it if I'm not prepared to do it myself.
1: So then you started the blog and then there was just the one post for it was like 5 years or five something years. so what happened there what why 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 the big gap
0: so i wrote that first blog post filled with energy because i just passed my phd and i was like this mm-hmm. is what i'm going to do i'm going to change the world right we're going to put stuff out there and talk about post phd life and then i decided to sit my fellowship of the royal college exams um <laughs> in, as well and suddenly discovered that going from Three years of working every weekend and not having any time off um, straight into an incredibly high stakes exam where more than 50 percent of people fail. And getting my foot back into the clinical world of kind of doing really late nights and stuff just meant that I didn't have that creative energy. I think if I'd been posting at that point, it would have all been like, oh my God, I'm just knackered <laughs> never sit another exam. right okay. <laughs> which wasn't really the pitch that I wanted to kind of bring to it. And I think I was also really worried about being exposed back then. Like, I mean, you've read my blogs so, that, you know, I I I don't hold anything back, right? I am right I write entirely as me. And I think I hadn't got to the point then when I was prepared to say this is me like take it or leave it comment on the fact that I don't know what to do with a comma and you hate my grammar or not right um you don't have to agree with it and so it took me a while I think from that getting that concept to being prepared to own it and being brave enough to just chuck it out there and not worry whether it was a success or not, not worry about whether people read it or connect with it or um, be seen as a failure. I think it was a really new thing for me and I had to be get to a point where I was prepared to just do it because I wanted to do it and for it not to matter if it was a complete failure and nobody agreed with what I wrote or read what I wrote. And so that just takes a bit of thinking time, I think, to get grow into that space as a person.
1: You know what? I, I I can actually really understand that it's sort of kind of developing uh, your your style, but in public. Uh, I mean, I'm sure yeah. you, probably if you go back to you know, your earlier posts, you probably look at them and, and, and I think they're not very good. And I can, you know, if I go back to very early episodes of this podcast and I go, oh, I shouldn't have said this or that or that doesn't sound very good, whatever. So I can understand that you you develop that uh, craft over time, but you're doing it in a public way. Which, which can be scary sometimes.
0: Yeah, no, yeah. very much so, especially if you're saying what you think. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've talked about the death of my sister. I've talked about not being able to have kids. I've talked about all kinds of things. And and I think I'm passionate about that honesty. But it, it took a while to get there in order to feel like I was doing it for all the right reasons.
1: Mm, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, you've developed... Yeah, maybe this was you've your, always been your style, but there's kind of a humorous uh, or sort of a little tongue-in-cheek aspect to, to a lot of the posts. And you put like funny little memes kind of in between the paragraphs and things like that. There, there's a couple of posts that I want to talk about because I thought were very interesting. One of them was – it was fairly recent. You talked about uh, turning 42, which, of course, anybody who's, who's read or, or I guess watched the movie now, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, they know that's the answer to life, the universe, and everything
0: it really is
1: yes all right so tell me about this why 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 did you feel like you wanted to write about turning 42 in particular aside from the number i guess
0: i mean the number was brilliant i thought if i don't do it now i'm never gonna be able to so i will take the moment where it lands i think i wanted to share some of the stuff that in my 20s and 30s i thought was the most important thing in the world right I think succeeding and being driven and always moving to the next thing, having my tick list of life felt so important in my 20s and 30s. And I kind of wanted to share that actually now I'm in my 40s and I have ticked off most of those things. I wish I'd sat back and smelled the roses a bit more. I think I'd enjo- wish I'd enjoyed the journey a bit more. And so there was just bits like that that I just wanted to share to people who are following behind me to encourage them to live in the moment a little bit more um, and to enjoy the process in a way that I probably didn't, right? I've always gone, okay, so on to the next thing, on to the next thing. And I also wanted to share the joy of actually not giving as much of a Like, I've reached my 40s, and it's lovely if people like me. And it's lovely if people respond to what I write. And, you know, I adore that. Who doesn't? But also, if you don't get me, I kind of know I'm a bit like Marmite. You know, some people will love it, some people will hate it, some people will never want to talk about it again. (laughs) And (laughs) I've spent my life being a people pleaser, right? And trying to get everyone to love me. And I finally got to the point where I'm like, if I'm not your cup of tea, it's okay. And there's a joy in that. There's a freedom in that. And for all those people that haven't got there yet, I kind of wanted to go, it's all right. You'll you'll be all right. There is a point where it all makes sense and you just don't need to worry about it.
1: Yeah, that's true. Two things about what you just said. I mean, is as far as sort of accepting yourself and accepting that not everybody's going to like what that is that's that takes a lot of time typically you know I've kind of recently gotten there myself but that that's important to to be okay with yourself and then the other part of it is like you said enjoying the journey i know a lot of people you you go through your your training your your schooling and you know work career and you're just kind of keeping your head down and trying to advance and trying to get farther and you forget to to stop and kind of look at what you're doing and how, how how great it is that you've accomplished that and the the things that you're doing the people that you're helping and that's important too to to kind of stop and look around a little bit even though it might seem like you really don't have the time yeah that's it, it's I think it's important not to not to miss that aspect
0: yeah and I just think it's important to look at life with a bit of humor really mm-hmm. otherwise it's really hard and if we don't laugh at ourselves occasionally. Um, then actually, what is life about? Right, you have to take that step back and be able to go. God, was I an idiot in that moment? <laughs> Does it matter now? I used to obsess about mm-hmm. conversations I'd had um, like six months ago. Six months ago, in terms of like, oh my God, I said this in a slightly different tone, and will they possibly think that I meant something else? I'm like, just take the time to step back and go. Will this matter next week? Right. Will this marriage the next year? If it doesn't, then just cut yourself a break. Laugh about it. Laugh about yourself. Learn from it and move on.
1: Yep, I like it. All right, I, another post, and this one's quite a bit more serious, but this was from back in December, and it, it was called, I have the best job in the world, and I don't know how much more I can take. And this was, I think this was at the time, it was kind of like the, the was, was this the Delta spike? Uh, during uh, covid or
0: omicron wasn't it it was just omicron. as omicron was right. kind of taking over the world
1: right and and especially in, in the uk you, you guys were, were really hit hard by this so yeah. i can understand kind of the point of view at the time can you talk about the, kind of the situation at the time and and how that sort of inspired you to to write this post
0: yeah i mean i am passionate about my job i am lucky to have a job that i love and i think it frankly is the best job in the world and everyone should be really jealous <laughs> but <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> just because it's the best job in the world does not mean it's always easy and i had talked to people i think on the 31st of january 2020 i had posted that the life was going to change and it life wouldn't be the same for two to three years. And I just don't think that at that time I had any idea what two to three years would feel like in terms of just the constantness of it. So I think you probably don't work in infection control if you're not a bit of an adrenaline junkie with like stuff kicking off and you having to make rapid decisions and, you know, pulling exceptionally long days because something immediately has happened. But there's something really different when you don't ever go back to normal in between those times. You know, we lost I lost relatives because of COVID. I lost co-workers because of COVID. And when you're aware of what's coming and everybody else doesn't seem to quite get it, that's a really difficult place to be in. And we were just in a place where we were having to start to make really difficult clinical decisions where you don't have enough beds and you don't have enough ECMO beds to, you know, you're basically choosing who goes where and what that means for families and patients and, you know, whether people can come in and see people. Um, You know, I had my, um, my mother's partner died alone, basically, because of the fact of COVID guidance. And so you are doing work to manage something that you can't walk away from because you take it home. Because COVID is at home. It's not like a normal outbreak where you manage it at work and no matter how bad something happens at work, you walk away from the hospital and you get a respite. In this case, for two years, you've been doing it at work. You make really difficult decisions at work and then you go home and people phone you going, should I go and see my dying uncle? they have COVID and I'm at high risk. And you're saying to your relatives, no, I don't think you should, because actually that could mean that you get it too. And you live with those decisions at home as well as work. And I think with Omicron coming and everybody had tried to kind of step back, it was really hard because everybody at that point had 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 so much pandemic fatigue that you could see that the things that you were going to try and do, that you had to do, that you didn't have enough staff because there was so much sickness, because it was running so wild in the community. And we're going to be really hard for people to comply with, but you absolutely needed them to comply with. And so the decisions were hard and the situation was hard and you're starting already exhausted. So I kind of wanted to acknowledge that because... I was feeling that way. And I'm lucky enough to be in a job that I really, really love. There were other people across the country who were less supported than I am, having to make those same decisions in even worse positions personally. And sometimes I think it's important to not try to sugarcoat it and go, actually, it's all white people, and to give a pep talk. Because there were times when, you know, I, I often try to be upbeat and say to people you know there are there's always a silver lining there's always something going on Mm -hmm. and for this one i felt it was really important to just acknowledge that actually it was just really bad and we were all really tired and that we were there for each other um so that people didn't feel sometimes you feel guilty for feeling like you're not dealing and i wanted people to know that that was actually okay to not deal that we'd still get through it but to so acknowledge that you don't have to be okay with it all the
1: time. I like that. That's that's a good message. And that 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 certainly was the case for, for a lot of people, like you said. The burnout from all of that is very real. And it's I think that's going to continue, you know, even after the, the pandemic is over, just yeah. trying to sort of recover from that.
0: Yeah, because I mean, I don't know what the US is like, but over here we've got such a backlog in clinical care. That there will be no mm-hmm. respite, there will be no lull. We now need to like overachieve on what we would have done even pre-pandemic to catch up with where we should be. So, even like we're in the middle of quite another wave of COVID. But even like once this is done, there is no stepping away and taking a break and taking it easy because actually we have to get through through all of that backlog in order to make people better. We can't just tell Anna, and go, actually, I need a bit of a holiday. Can you wait another six months? It's just not an option.
1: Right.
0: Um, and so we have to be in it together.
1: You know, you get involved in a, a lot of different things. You've got, you're involved in a lot of different committees and organizations, and you won lots of awards and multiple honors, kind of as a, as a result of doing that. Do you feel it's important you know, being being a a healthcare scientist and being a a woman healthcare scientist, is that part of your motivation to get involved in these things, to show, to show that to, uh, you know, maybe young girls who are interested in science. Is that part of the motivation?
0: Absolutely. But also to show it to my colleagues, like there's a lot of times when I'm the only scientist at a table and I want to show the impact that my workforce can have and the benefits they can make if you let them into a room and so a lot of what I do is trying to get into rooms so that people even know that we exist to then see the benefits that we can bring to open the doors for other people Um, and I think that's really really important because often decisions are made across kind of workflows and healthcare that involve diagnostics right that involve labs and scientists who are never in the room to have the discussion about whether something will work or not and so often these things get rolled out and they don't work as well as they could do because the people that are running the tests aren't in the room so like a really classic one is when people choose about how they're going to change surgical sites and combine hospitals that do surgery if you don't have all the lab support for the blood matching and the diagnosis of surgical site infections and all of those things, then actually your patient outcomes aren't going to be as good. So people need to be in the room. I think I struggle a little bit with the prizes and stuff in that they're amazing and I obsessively nominate others and have been really lucky to be nominated myself. I think sometimes it's seen as you just trying to acquire kudos or like get applause, whereas for me it is very different. For me, I want people to see that we can do these things and to fund things like public engagement projects, which no one's going to unless they get that kind of recognition. And so... I think people see it as being quite a selfish and individualistic thing to win these awards. Whereas actually, to me, they're about moving us all forward. And this year it might be me, but I hope that next year it will be somebody else that's followed it. Somebody else who's been inspired by that piece of work to think that they can do it. For me, it's very much about opening doors. And I think we should nominate each other. Like I spend a lot of time nominating my colleagues for awards because I think it will benefit them and their careers. And it's the thing that I can do to give them a slap on the back and go, well done, you're doing an amazing thing. You're doing an amazing piece of work. And so I think we need to like take the time to do that a little more. I don't think we tell people what a good job they're doing often enough. And therefore, by me nominating others, I'm walking that walk and hoping to raise each other up in a way that I think we should really focus on. Because there are other professions who will do it more and do it better. And unless we start doing it and learning how to do it better ourselves, then we won't be featured and we won't be
1: seen. Do you think part of this is kind of goes back to, you know, how you started, you know, how you said that there were no role models for you in science there was nobody to kind of show you the way or very few people at least is that is that part of it too like you're trying to to be that and you're trying to nominate these other people to be those role models that that you didn't have
0: yeah no absolutely I want I want visibility I don't want it for myself as Elaine but I want visibility so that people can see that they can do it too so that my undergrads can see that you can achieve. Like who would have thought that someone like me would get a new year's honor? I didn't even feature in my wildest possible dreams. I am a complete, I'm so normal, right? And I'm never the smallest person in the room. I'm never that like person who won loads of academic prizes at university or has been, you know, I'm not special in that way. And I want people to know that you don't have to be other to be good at your job, right? That you don't have to be the person that is going to win a Nobel Prize. You don't have to be the person that's always been top of their class. You just don't have to be like, I don't know, Sheldon Cooper levels of smart in terms of making a difference. You can be a normal person who watches Netflix on a weekend and still make a difference for patient care and still be a scientist. Right. You don't have to just talk about science. Science is so much seen as being this other thing. Because people don't put it in everyday context. People don't talk about the science that people do every day in terms of their daily lives um, in order to really understand that science is for them. And so unless we are standing up and showing people that, then it will continue to be other. And that means that when things like pandemics hit, you'll get into this. You live in your ivory tower and you don't know what my real life is like. Whereas actually what we need people to understand is that scientists are people too. They have lived experience just like you. It's just whereas you may go and work in a bank, I go and work in a hospital, we still bring that lived experience with us to our jobs. And by that method, we break down those barriers so that people see us as people who do science, not as other people who are in a different world who like, I don't know, sit, wear tweed and kind of drink um, champagne in our little academic kind of offices, which is not the reality for
1: any of us. Right. I love it. That, that, that's a great message. That actually might be, might be a, a good place to end. All right, Dr. Elaine Cotman-Green, thank you very much. This has been great.
0: Thank you. All right. I've had such fun. <laughs>
1: yeah, me too. Great big thanks to Dr. Elaine Clotwin-Green. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode.
2: I can't emphasize enough to the audience and to others that I talked to, how exciting the Pfizer and Moderna technology is. I mean, basically the mRNA technology is going to allow us now to rapidly, not only uh, start creating vaccines against new agents that we see in the future, but it's also going to allow us to adjust and uh, maneuver more quickly for uh, variance, which is what's happening right now. So, in a nutshell, uh, what these companies are doing is they are engineering. And again, it takes time, so that's why you know supply issue. I know everybody's wanting more, but it has to be done right. It has to be done, you know, as clean and as quality control driven as possible because this is so important and. They basically are taking pieces of mRNA that has the code for the spike protein of the virus.
1: You can hear more from Dr. Rodney Rohde in episode 50. I think there were a few good lessons from this conversation today. The first one is all of the things that you've done on your way to your chosen field, whatever it is right now, you bring all those experiences and all that knowledge with you. And sometimes that will help you think about a problem in a different way and maybe come up with an innovative solution. And of course, probably the biggest lesson from this one was to try to look around from time to time and enjoy the journey that you're on. And instead of thinking about the things that didn't go right or the things that you didn't achieve, think about how far you've come and the things that you have accomplished. I'll have links to Dr. Cloutman Green's work in the show notes. You'll definitely wanna check out the girly microbiologist blog. I love her writing style and I think you will too. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.